our topic is God's global peace plan. And before we begin, let's have a special word of prayer for God's guidance. Holy Father, we thank you that we can come to you and know that our God lives. The God who not only sees the past and the present, but Lord, who sees the future and reveals it to us through his prophets. As we come to you, help us to truly know your will for our lives, that we may be your humble servants. In Jesus' name, guide us, we pray. Amen. World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, only four years. Millions of people died. It was called the Great War, the war to end all wars. Obviously, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, the treaty that was signed to help end the war actually was one of the factors that led to the Second World War because it was so oppressive. And from 1939 to 1945, the world was all wrapped up in another war. Tens of millions of people died or injured or wounded by it. After that, we go to the Korean War, the uh, Vietnam War. And right now, we're tangled up with problems in the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Since Israel came into being in 1948, there hasn't been any real peace at all. They've been in conflict with the nations about them. There was the Six-Day War in 1967, then the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Now we're wrapped up with the uh, intifadas and all the other conflicts that's going on. We think about Lebanon, we think about Syria, all of these, and people are wondering, in spite of all the peace treaties that they make, all the accords that they make, will there be peace in the world? Even individually, not just on a global conflict, but individually, people are experiencing the lack of peace. One thing I noticed in my ministry is that people I run into, the number one, I, I basically have to call it mental illness, the number one mental illness of society today is a guilty conscience. People feel guilty about everything, and it leads them to be depressed. My friends, God doesn't want us to constantly be at conflict. He wants us to be at peace. People are feeling guilty about their relationship with God, that God can't forgive them for their sins. He does want to forgive you. He will forgive you if you ask. And we find that in the New Testament, there are 19 books where the writers begin with the words, Peace be unto you. This is God's will enough so that 19 of the writers start their letters or their books by talking about peace. And interestingly enough, that's 
the way Revelation begins, that God wants to bring us peace. He wants to enlighten our mind to know what his character is like and how he can bless us. This personal peace that he wants to bring to us may be for things we've done in the past. We find that there are those who are feeling guilty because they had an abortion. Or perhaps they, they committed some sin and they feel that God can't forgive them. Do you ever notice that it's easier to, for other people to forgive you than for you to forgive yourself? I can think of many things I've done. I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, and people forgave me, but boy, I had a tough time forgiving myself for it. Oftentimes we, we transfer that to God, and we say, God can't possibly forgive me. You know, when you say that God can forgive anybody but me, you know what you're actually saying? You're actually saying you're bigger than God. You're actually doing something that God can't forgive. And he says he will forgive it, and you say, no, you won't. You're actually doubting God. We need to realize that even in our technological age, when there's so much going on, we have our smartphones and all the other distractions of the world about us. The only way we're going to get peace is taking time aside with God. Through prayer, through the word of God, and get to know him personally. In Psalm 119, 165, notice what it says here. It says, great peace. Now notice that in the Psalms. Great peace have those who love your what? Your law. Well, I've, I've had a lot of people say, oh, the law is evil, the law is wrong, the law is, is oppressive. That's what makes people feel guilty. Let's get rid of the law. Well, notice what it says. You have peace if you love God's law. And nothing causes them to stumble. If you kept the law, you wouldn't get in trouble with the, with the police, would you? Well, most of the time, anyway. You could avoid a lot of trouble if you lived within the law. The law is actually a fence to protect us and to keep us in a right relationship. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, you're going to find that there's a group of people whom the Bible calls his saints at the end of time. And interestingly enough, they're not a bunch of rebels. As a matter of fact, he calls them saints because they are keeping the commandments of God. Now, what if everybody did that? Would that make society a lot better than what it is now? Or would you rather live next to a bunch of criminals? You see. Many people are in prison because of the fact that they don't respect not only the law of the land, but the law of God. Did God say, thou shalt not steal? Why do you think you have locks on your doors? Because there are those who choose to do so. In the United States currently, uh, it's the, the prisons are the home of 2.3 million prisoners. 2.3 million people. Why? Because 
they chose to live outside of the law. Don't be caught by surprise. God tells us that the Bible saw a runaway a crime rate years ago. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 24, 12, it tells us this. Did I say Matthew? I meant Revelation. 24, 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why? What happened in heaven? There were those who did not want to live according to uh, God's dictates. And as a result, war broke out in heaven. We studied about that. And they were cast out. And it says, praise the Lord that there's peace in heaven. But woe to you poor people of the earth. Because who is down here? Right. Where is all this trouble coming from? It says, for the devil has come down to you having a little bit of a a tiff. No. With great wrath. Why? Because he knows he has a short time. Now, what's that saying? It's saying that he said to the universe, "I I can run things better than God can. I want to be in God's place because I can do things better than God. And we don't need God's commandments because we're perfect angels. And I can run things better. And basically God says, all right, put up and shut up. But I'm only going to give you a certain period of time to do it. Because your time is about to come to an end. You see, God does not want this sin problem to go on for eternity. He wants to bring an end to it. Therefore, there has to be a judgment. People don't want to talk about a judgment in these days. Well, you're being judgmental. Yes, I am. Because the scripture is being judgmental. He says that he's going to bring an end to the ills and to the crime that's on the earth. And to the greatest criminal of them all. Lucifer himself. Lucifer's not going to live on forever and ever to cause trouble through all eternity. The Lord is going to bring an end to him too. We'll talk about that later. He knows that he only has a short time. And because of that, like a lion, he's going around seeking whom he may devour. There's power that comes with working in cooperation with God. And in the final days, Daniel talks about some things that would come along. He says that there would be a power that would arise at the end of time, oftentimes referred to as the man of lawlessness. He's also referred to as the Antichrist. And he's also referred to as, oh my, the third one slips my mind. It'll come back to me. I'm having a senior moment. But anyway, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is connected with lawlessness. Ultimately, Satan is the, the, uh, he's the ultimate Antichrist, isn't he? But one who works against Christ is an Antichrist, you see. And so it says in the end times, 
and he and shall intend to change times and laws. Now, historically, has that happened? Is it happening today? I have reason to believe that it has, it is, and it continues to be. Notice that he would change times. In the time of the Bible, the day began when? What's it say in Genesis chapter 1? Look at it, please. I think it's verse 5. Look at Genesis 1.5. I don't have my Bible open. But tell me when time, uh, when a day began and end. Somebody look at that and raise your hand so I know who's talking. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. Go ahead, Bob. All right, which was mentioned first? Evening or the dark. As a matter of fact, oh, probably what? No. No, it says, um, and the darkness is called night. Look at that last part. So the evening, is this evening? So Saturday, Saturday is about to come to an end. What time sunset around here? Around 8.30. All right, probably about a half an hour. This is the tail end of Saturday. In about a, a half an hour, you're going to begin the first day of the week, Sunday. The evening comes first, and then the daytime. Now, you may say, oh, yeah, well, uh, that's old time. We go now by what? 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, right? Do you realize what we're going by right now is Roman time? We are not going by Hebrew time. In Hebrew time, it was the evening, then the morning. But did you realize that there are several times during the year when you revert back and you don't even know it? Long about the time of jingle bells, people rush home when? Christmas Eve, you see. And they start observing Christmas in the night. Maybe unwrap their gifts or whatever they do. In the morning they eat and get all stuffed. But as soon as the sun goes down on the 25th, they're back to whatever they're doing. What about Halloween? Halloween, as a matter of fact, I was talking to one of my uh, Filipino friends. And I said... uh, what, what do you call the, the, uh, the 1st of November? Well, what do Americans call the 1st of November? It's called All Saints Day. And my Filipino friend said, Halloween. I said, no, no, no. That's the last of October. He said, no, in the Philippines, it's the 1st of November. In reality, we're both right. Because... All Hallows' Eve begins when you start worshiping the dead and trying to buy off the evil spirits. And then All Saints' Day, you take care of the bad spirits in the evening and you take care of the good spirits in the daytime, you see. It's worship of the dead. And here we see twice a year at least 
you start with the evening and then the next morning. We revert back to that, that timekeeping. So we find that times did change, but also laws changed. And we find we'll be getting more into that as to what those laws were. But this was predicted by Daniel. Daniel was around six, well, about 500 years before the Roman Empire ever came up. And yet he predicted this. Today, people are completely disregarding God's laws. Everybody, even the young people, they want to party all the time. Immorality is spreading across the U.S. in rapid proportion. There are parts of almost every city in the United States where you don't go at night. And you, you may be in trouble if you go in the daytime because of the crime that can be found in them. Notice what it says in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, and people. Is this restricted to the United States? No. Is this restricted to one race of people? No, it's worldwide. This is a worldwide outreach to the world. It's the everlasting gospel. It lasts forever. What is, what is the word gospel? The word gospel means good news. What is the good news? That I don't have to remain a sinner. I don't have to remain a slave to Satan and to bad habits. I can find deliverance. I can overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. I don't have to die the eternal death. I can have eternal life. This is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. And so we find that in Revelation 14.6, it tells us that this is something we need to preach to the whole world. What does that say about us? We need to get on the ball. Right? We need to do our job because there are people who are dying out there who never heard that before. And they die, they, they go to their graves feeling guilty. They go to their graves hopeless. And we are to bring them hope. Notice what it says also. Saying with a loud voice. Unfortunately, today Christianity is preaching the gospel with a whimper. We need to shout it out with a loud voice. And what's it saying? Fear God. Give glory to Him. Why? For the hour of His what? That's the one thing the devil doesn't want preached. That there's a judgment coming. That the hour of His judgment has come. And what is it that the devil wants most? Worship, right? Before we saw that the beast wanted worship. But here in Revelation, it says, Worship him, speaking of Christ, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. My friends, our God is the creator God. He's the one that is to be exalted. And this is telling us who made us. And the one who made us is the one that we should worship. Not the creature, but the Creator. And notice what it says also in verse 12. 
And here is the patience of the saints. Now stop and think about it. I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. I'm only a saint as Christ calls me a saint or makes me a saint. And oftentimes we get the idea of a saint as being some super, super uh, religious person who performs miracles and they're saints. No, a saint is a redeemed sinner. You are saints, you see. And it says, here is the patience of the saints. Now, what does the word patience mean? The word patience, in the original language, it means steadfastness, the firmness. They hang in there. Here's the hang of honors. They hang on to Christ, you see. Here is the patience of the saints. Now, these are the people who perform miracles. Are these the people who raise the dead? Are they the people who, who uh, um, preach good sermons? How do you identify who these saints are? Don't forget, the devil can do miracles. And in the last days, he can and will do miracles. So how do you identify God's end time people? Notice, here are those who what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus and in Jesus. The faith like Jesus and in Jesus. Now, you say, well, that's righteousness by works. No, we are saved by God's grace because of our faith. However, if you are saved by grace because of your faith, don't you think your works should come in, into play? It says, by their works you will know them. Right? If a, you know, it reminds me of the story of the young man who was in love. And he wrote a letter to his beloved. And he said, for you I would climb the highest mountain. For you I would cross the the." broadest river for you I would fight the strongest foe P.S. I'll be over tomorrow night if it doesn't rain (laughs) you know if we say we love the Lord don't you think that we should do what pleases the Lord we should keep his commandments and he tells us what those things are the commandments are actually a safeguard They're not to take all the fun out of life. They're to put fun in life. To spare us from the things that would harm us. And so, God is telling us that the commandments that he gave on Mount Sinai were for our benefit. Now, you've got to remember that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were like little children. And if you see your child out playing, bouncing the ball out on the white line in the middle of the uh, road, you don't say, now dear, you must come uh, come over here because if you stay out there too long, a car is going to come by and he may hit you and that will hurt you and you'll have to go to the hospital and you'll be there for a long time and it'll run up all kinds of bills and you may be so crippled from it that you can't go to college and you won't have a career and all. 
Is that what you say to your kid when he's bouncing the ball on the line? You say, get out of the road. Right? <laughs> yeah. It, when, when you get him off the road, then maybe you can reason with him. But there are times when God has to just say, do it. He gives us the reason later. But do it. And so, what does he do? He gives them ten uh, laws. And he says, thou shalt not. Now, they sound negative. Why? Because he's talking to children who have just come out of slavery. Later on, there's a difference between there's a difference between principles and rules. Behind every rule, there's a principle. Okay? And he says, here are ten rules. Get out of the road. And then, later on, he says, because you love me, because I love you, and you love me, you won't do those things that hurt me. You will do the things that please me. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you want to have peace, if you want to feel at peace with God, keep his commandments. That's what he's telling us. What are the commandments? You know, most people today, if you ask them the Ten Commandments, they'll hardly be able to give you a commandment. Oh, I want to go back to that previous slide for a moment. Notice that there are two tablets, right? And here we think one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four on this side, and the rest, the six are on that side, right? Now stop and think. What are the ones on this side? These first four pertain to our relationship with God. These on this side pertain to our relationship to our fellow man. And that's why when Jesus was asked, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's talking about this tablet. And then he said, the other ones like it, love your neighbor as yourself, you see. And interestingly enough, Jesus could have been sued for plagiarism. Because what he said, I'm giving you a new commandment. To love God, to love your neighbor. He could have been sued for plagiarism. Because you know who said that? Moses did. Moses did. And he gave it just shortly after he gave the Ten Commandments. You see, Moses is saying that all of this has to do with our love for God. All of this has to do with our love for our neighbor. And what is the principle or the chief word in both of those statements? Love. You see, God is love. The Ten Commandments are actually a transcript of the character of God. And the only way you can change the commandments is to change the character of God. And what's it say about God? He doesn't change. And he isn't going to change. And what he has written, no man is to change. And yet, historically, it has happened. 
Men have changed his commandments, which we'll touch on later. Now notice, what are the commandments? The first one is, you shall have no other God before me. Not Buddha. Not, uh, well, any other God you want. Okay? It is only the God of heaven, the creator God. We'll find out later. He even states that. The second one. You shall not make any graven images or bow down to worship them. This was one of the first commandments to go out the window in the Middle Ages or the early ages. As a matter of fact, that commandment does not even appear in some catechisms. Why? Because images began to creep in the more they more they uh, that uh, pagans came into the church. You are not to bow or genuflex or anything else to an image, to a statue. You see. Now, some people say, well, that means you should take all the pictures off your wall. Uh, if you have a picture of Jesus on the wall, you should take it off. Or if you have a picture of your mother-in-law on the wall, you should take it down. <laughs> okay? Well, my friends... If you are bowing down and worshiping that picture of Jesus, if you are bowing down and worshiping that picture of your mother-in-law, you better take it down. When, when I was over in Cambodia and Thailand, they used to burn incense to pictures. Uh, that's, that's considered worship. We are not to bow down or worship them, notice. And then the third commandment. Whoops, excuse me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, when I was a teenager, I picked up a bad habit of using some choice words. But you know, after I gave my heart to the Lord, I wonder where those words went. They just kind of fell away. When Christ comes into our lives, he changes us. You know, the Lord accepts you where you're at, but he'll never leave you where you're at. He'll always change you. And even our vocabulary will change when we come to know the Lord. And you know, it's interesting, going back to that a minute, did you ever notice that kids, especially teenagers, when they're with their friends, they can swear and come up with all kinds of cuss words. But the moment they hit that back door and go into the kitchen where mom is, all of a sudden the the vocabulary cleans up. It shows that a lot of it is just, it's not a habit per se, but it's a situational habit. Okay? And you got to realize that deeds, individual deeds, make up habits. Habits make up character. And the only thing you're going to take to heaven with you is your character. Stop and think about it. The only thing you're going to take to heaven with you is your character. And is your character going to be harmonious with the character of God? Is your character going to be harmonious with the character of Jesus Christ He says that he will give you the Holy Spirit to change you. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. He changes our character to be like his. And so, it says that we should not take the name of the Lord in vain. When Peter wanted to prove that he was not a follower of Jesus, he started using all kinds of bad words. Right? Every time we use bad words, we are telling the world, I am not a Christian, no matter what church I go to or, or what I profess. The next, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now this is the Reader's Digest version. This is the kind you oftentimes see in, see in your catechisms. The, this is actually the longest commandment. It's the longest one of the Ten Commandments. And it has been reduced down to just a few words and it can be very deceptive. Because from that it says, remember. Now why? It's the only one of the commandments that begins with remember. Now what does that tell you? Can you remember something if you didn't remember it in the first place? Right? You can't remember something that you've never remembered. And it says, remember, this is willful forgetfulness, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But from that, can you determine if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? It doesn't tell you which day, but the commandment itself does. We'll talk about that later. This is another one that was changed. We said that the one regarding images that was removed. This one was changed and severely altered. And we'll come back to that. There's another one that has been too. Honor your father and your mother. Respect your father and your mother. You know, your mother and father, maybe they weren't the best parents in the world. But you know, God does not hold you accountable for your parents' sins. You are not responsible. You could have an abusive mother or father. And yet, God does not hold you accountable for that. He said, I, you are my child. I will help you to overcome even the disadvantages. There is no acquired and there is no inherited sin that you cannot overcome in the, with the power of Christ. When we say, well, God will have to accept me the way I am because I can't change. You're saying you don't want to change. And who are you to tell God what he's going to accept and what he isn't? You know what you're saying? I'm God over God. You see, God can change your heart. He can change your life. Even though you may not like your mother and father, you will honor them. You will respect them. You will provide for them. But you know, parents... If you want your kids respect, respect them. If you want your kids to be good to you and be loving to you, be good and loving to them. Because you get what you give, right? And so we need to remember to respect our young people and they will respect us. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And because of this, God wants us to stand firm for truth, even when it's unpopular. 
And even when our kids complain about it. Now, notice this. Number six. Thou shalt not murder. In your Bible says thou shalt not kill in many cases. That's fine. The intent of that is thou shalt not murder. If if you say thou shalt not kill, that means you dare not swat a mosquito or you're going to be kicked out of heaven. You see? That also includes self-murder. Are we eating ourselves to death? The things we put into our body, maybe alcohol, tobacco, and so forth, are we killing ourselves? Oh, yeah, that also takes in a, uh, abortion. A lot of people put a lot of emphasis on this and the abortion issue, and yet they ignore the other commandments. Oh, it's all right to change the other commandments, but don't touch that one. You can't pick and choose. God says that if we are guilt, I mean, if we break one, it's it's that we've broken them all. How many people do you have to murder before you're a criminal? Adolf Hitler killed six million Jews, uh, six million people, including the Jews. And Cain only killed one person. Are you going to hang Adolf Hitler six million times higher than you hang Cain? You see? Both of them fell short of the will of God. You break, when we break one commandment, it's as though we've broken them all. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The Bible uses two words. One is fornication, another is adultery. Adultery is fornication, but fornication isn't necessarily adultery. The word fornication means any kind of illicit or illegal sex, according to the scriptures. Adultery is between two married people. But this takes in, uh, fornication takes in premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, and a variety of others. I know I shouldn't have said that because a lot of people are going to be offended and you're going to throw stones at me. But my friends... Read what the scripture says. And homosexuality is a moral sin according to the word of God. No matter what politicians tell you or society tells you, it can cost you your eternal life. Think carefully on that because God can help you overcome no matter what the problem is even if it means you have to be celibate all your life or single. God can help you to overcome moral failure. Now, if I had said that in Canada, I'd be in trouble. But you know what? I preached in Canada, and I said it. Then I quickly ran over the border. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I didn't get arrested because the people knew what I was saying, and they knew the word of God. Somebody has to speak out on it. Thou shalt not steal. That also says thou shalt not cheat on thine income tax. Right? Thou, does, thou shalt not spend too much time at the water cooler. You're stealing from the boss. You see. Thou shalt not cheat on a test that you're taking. 
It all falls under stealing. You see, behind these commandments, there are principles. The Ten Commandments are actually principles for life. When you look at them in the broader sense. What about this? Thou shalt not bear false witness except when I got a juicy piece of gossip I can't wait to tell. Isn't that what it says? What about talking about somebody I don't like? Dragging them down. Is that bearing false witness? And even if it's true, is it always wise to pass on what's true? Sometimes it's better to bite your tongue. You know, it takes more wisdom to know what not to say than to know what to say. Sometimes. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And now we're going to the critical one. That one. Thou shalt not covet. How many sermons have you heard in recent years on thou shalt not covet? Oh, we've heard against thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. How many times do you hear a sermon on this? Do you know what? I think that's the worst sin of the ball. You know why? Unless I covet your car, I won't steal it. You have to covet before you steal it, right? Before you commit adultery, you have to covet somebody else's wife. And before you, you do any of those things, you have to covet. It's, it's actually the foundational one. The others are all outward actions. This one is an inward action. You see, this takes place inside of you. People can tell you're stealing when you're running down the street with somebody's pocketbook. You know, outwardly they can see that, but they can't see what's going on in your mind. Remember that old song that was popular years ago? Standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. I won't sing it, I'll spare you that. But, you know, it says right in there, you can't be arrested for what you're thinking. What's that saying? You're coveting. You see. And do you know that when the other commandments were changed, this also was changed. You will find in some of the uh, catechisms and so forth, you will find that because the second one was taken out, what happened? You ended up with nine commandments. So they took and they split that last one. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. See what they did? Nice little trick, isn't it? We take and split that one so the numbers come out right. And it looks like we're obeying and upholding the commandments, but in reality, we've tinkered with them. Now, what did it say that we learned the other day about tinkering with the book of Revelation? And what did it say in Deuteronomy, what did Moses say just before he quotes the Ten Commandments? He says, don't tinker around with the book of Deuteronomy. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy have the Ten Commandments in them, itemized. And he warns us against fooling around with God's law. There are those who today teach and believe that the Ten Commandments are obsolete. And they say, well, 
We're saved by grace. We don't need to keep God's commandments. You know what? The commandments were never designed to save you. The commandments were designed to point out sin. That's the purpose of them, the function of them. And what what does it do? The Ten Commandments are the law book that point out the errors in our lives. And because of this, they're not meant to clean up our lives. They're to point out errors. Let me put it this way. The Ten Commandments are like a mirror. You know, when you've been out working, maybe you've been out working on the car, and you come in and you look in the mirror, and you see that you've got grease all over the side of your face. Now, there's two things you can do. You can take that mirror and smash it. That mirror makes me look bad. You can do away with the law. You can do away with the commandments because they make me look bad. Or, well, actually, there's three things. Or you could take that mirror and say, oh, my face is dirty. I think I'll clean it off. And you start cleaning your face with the mirror. Well, you may end up with a few nicks and cuts and scratches, right? But you'll still have the, the grease on your face. Because that's not what a mirror is for. A mirror is for pointing at you and saying, hey, look, you've got something you've got to clean up. What's the function of a mirror? A mirror is to point out that you've got grease on your face. And then that sends you to the washcloth. And you take the washcloth and you clean it. And then you go back and you check in the mirror and say, how am I doing? And you look in the mirror and you say, ah, it's gone. But you know what? You missed a spot back here. So you go back to the washcloth and you clean that off. And then you come back to the mirror and check again. That's the function of the law. The law is to to, uh, direct us to Jesus who can clean up the act, you see. And so there are those who say, well, we don't have to keep the law because we're saved by grace. You may be saved by grace, my friends, but if you look especially at uh, John's letter, I mean, not John's, but James' letter, he says, even though we may be saved by grace, we are judged by the law. Every court has to have a law book, right? There's a statute there that the judge has to look at. And it says that, well, this says that if you committed this crime, this is your penalty. And if you're found guilty, that's what you're going to get. Because the law is pointing out the errors in our our situation. Let's uh, let's move this along a little bit, and you'll see that God wants us to be in harmony with Him. Why? Because it points to us. It points to His character. Actually, the the law of God is called the law of liberty in the Bible. It's actually called the law of liberty. Why? If you are driving down the highway and there's a policeman sitting on the corner and you look up and you see that the speed limit says 60 miles an hour. You look down at your odometer, which I know you're going to do. 
well, as soon as you see the policeman, you're going to look at your odometer, I mean your speedometer. And as you look at the speedometer, it says, ah, 59. So as you go by, hi, Mr. Policeman, how are you? And you merrily go off. But if you look at your speedometer, and instead of 60, it's 80. All of a sudden, what happens? You let up on the gas, right? But he still catches you anyway. You're a criminal. You have crossed the line from being a law-abiding citizen to a criminal. And because of this, the law, if we operate within the law, then we have freedom. We are at liberty. It's those who break the law that end up in correctional institutions. And spiritually, it works the same way. If we want genuine liberty, we want to be free, then we need to operate within God's guidelines. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Now, David was not perfect. I mean, he had a few black spots on his career, too. But what made... What made the difference with David? What made him a saint? It was his attitude. You know, I think many of us need an attitude adjustment. We need an attitude of gratitude, don't we? We need to be grateful for what Christ has done for us. It has, we have to change our thinking. That's why it says, let the mind of Christ be in you. Christ's mind was one of gratefulness and obedience to his Father. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is where? Written on a table of stone. Uh Uh-uh. In the Old Testament, we find that the law of God was written in stone. In the New Testament, he said, you know, it was on stone, but you guys never took it off the stone and Put it into your lives. So what's he saying? You tried to do it on your own. And you fell flat on your face. He said, I'm forgiving you. I'm letting Christ be your penalty. But you know what? I'm going to write that obedience on your heart. On your heart and in your hand. You'll find in the book of Revelation... It talks about the mark of the beast and the mark of the best. The mark of the beast and the mark of the best, right? And we find that it's in our minds. What's behind here? Your frontal lobe. That's where you think. That's where you pray. That's where you make decisions. And in your forehead, you will either have the seal of God or the mark of the beast. The character of God or the character of the beast. And on your hand, your hand doesn't do something unless your mind tells it to do it. So you've you've got your mind and your works going together, you see. And this is where he wants to put his signature. And that's what the law of God does. And if anybody tampers with the law of God, they're going to be in a little bit of trouble, a lot of big trouble. Why? Because they are not only violating the old covenant, they're violating the new covenant too. I delight. It's enjoyable. I take pleasure in doing God's will. 
And you know what? There comes a time when you will do it, not because you have to, but because you want to. You want to. And when, when your life is changed, remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus says, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Well, neither do I accuse you. And then he said, go back to your life as usual. Nuh-uh. He says, I don't accuse you. I don't condemn you. But go sin no more. He expects a change in our lives. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, how long? Till heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? Lest I knew, it was still here. Not one jot nor one tittle will by any means pass from the law until it's fulfilled. Now, all is fulfilled. What is a jot? That's that little dot on the top of the letter I. That's that little dot on top of an I. That's a jot. What is a tittle? A tittle is the crossbar on a T. What he's saying is not even the punctuation of the law will change as long as the earth is around. Lest I know he's still around. Therefore I assume that the law of God is still valid. And it says till all is fulfilled. Well people say well Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore he did away with it. Well, Jesus also said that he came to fulfill all righteousness. Did he do away with righteousness? The word fulfill means completed. And the law would be completed in him. I have run out of time. And I still got some more I want to tell you. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to get into the difference between the moral Ten Commandment law and the ceremonial laws. Because people get those confused. But I guess I'll just have to hold that over to the next time, okay? Because I don't want to keep you too late. But uh, I want you to know that God's moral Ten Commandment law is just as valid today as it was at any time in history. And God is looking for a people in these last days, who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. They will do what is right because it is right. This is what God is calling his people to do. My friends, this is what he's calling you to do. And by the grace of God, may we be the people who rise to the occasion in these last days. Come back on Monday, and I'll pick up with the rest of it, and we'll go into the parts that were changed. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your many mercies and blessings to us. Help us, Lord, to stand for the right and to to live in harmony with your will, that we may be in your kingdom. But even so, on this earth, that we may enjoy life more abundantly and be a witness to those who are seeking seeking the freedom from the, the sin and the guilt and the care around them. 
may we be able to point them to the wonderful Savior we've discovered. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.